So let's get right into it this morning in Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount. At some point in Jesus' ministry, his disciples came to him and asked him to teach them how to pray. And the most likely reason is because they saw that his prayer life got results. In the scriptures, in the Psalms, it says the Lord inhabits the praises of Israel, which we can apply by way of extension. He inhabits the praise of his people. He inhabits the praise of his church. We know just from watching nature that nature is always praising God, giving glory to God. I was looking at the sky last night, some small gray clouds with orange underneath them. I was thinking to myself, how would I paint them if I was putting that on a canvas? And then the scripture came to me, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Everything around us all the time was declaring the glory of God. The exception being man. And that's what sin has done to us. Now, In Matthew chapter 6, I thought that it would be a good idea to remind you, because my mind has been going back to these chapters 5, 6, and 7 for a couple of months now. And I find myself once again being challenged by the things that Jesus said. In fact, we can look at it real quickly, if you would. And the way he ends this sermon, right? Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 7, in verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. So he's not talking about people who don't profess to know. He's talking about people who do. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And then in the immediate context, if you look at verse 24, it says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine. So the immediate context is the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and what's left uh, prior to these verses in chapter 7. Whoever hears them and does them, I will liken unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. So hearing and doing. Everyone that hears these sayings of mine and doeth them not, and doesn't do them, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So I want to remind you again, as I do from time to time, reading the Bible, that's one thing. But it's not meant to just be read, it's meant to be acted on. Obedience, we read it just last week, week before. Obedience is better than sacrifice. To listen to God, the prophet Samuel said, and do what he says was the implication, is better than all the fatted rams and the sacrifices, which God had ordained. So just do what God says to do, and that's better than anything you could do on your own and say, well, I'm doing this for God. And I know in my own heart, there have been times when I've done things for God with the right heart, and you know, the Lord would just speak to me and say, I didn't ask you to do this. This is not why I made you. This is not the gifts and talents that I've given to you. And so we have what I have termed religious compensation. Instead of doing what God asked you to do, you say, well, I'm not going to do this for you. And God says, no, that's not what I want you to do. Because we all have a place in the kingdom, and we all have gifts and talents. And I'm dependent on your gifts and talents. You're dependent on mine. So we come to the subject of prayer in chapter 6. And I want to read from verse 5. When Jesus says, and when thou prayest, and when you pray, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. So there are some, I don't know in my life, in my experience, I've seen too many, I don't know, who in obviously a time of prayer and perhaps public prayer like to be heard. They like to sound good in front of people, in front of men. Let me just give you a little tip on prayer. When you pray, just be natural about it. Certainly God is not impressed with your vocabulary. But neither is he frightened by the fact that you don't know sometimes what words to choose, which I think is happening more and more recently to, uh, or lately, to people that we're going before God with so much on our minds that we don't even know precisely what words to use to explain. But we're feeling and what we're seeing and the distress and whatever. In any case, there are people who like to be seen and they like to be heard in church. 
There are people who like to be known, well, that's the prayer warrior. And I'm not saying that that's bad necessarily because you may have a reputation as a prayer warrior because that's what you actually are. But there's certain people, just like preachers, they go into the ministry for the wrong reason. They like being in front of people. They like being in front of a crowd. We talk about preaching to the choir. They like the applause of men. I'll tell you the truth, the verse that we just read in Matthew chapter 7, if I was writing a sermon, that's not how I would end it. So, you know, you're taught in homiletics in preaching, which, as you know, I didn't have formal education in the Bible. I always studied on my own. In homiletics, you're taught to end on a, you know, a positive note. Start low, go slow, rise higher, catch fire. That's the technique. Actors do that. Jesus always told the truth. He said this and that and all these things that we have in here in this Sermon on the Mount. And now he says, now, if you do them, you're wise. You're going to stand. You're going to abide the difficult times. You're going to abide for eternity. Those that read and hear but don't do them, foolish, your house is not going to stand. So we need to establish that. So we look at verse 5 and we see this affinity that some have, not everybody, that some have for prayer, and we could throw in preaching and even singing and other things. Verse 6, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. This is a great thing, to be able to gain experience with God. Many of us went to church meetings when we were small, or brought to church meetings, and for some, it just never really entered deep into their heart. I told you this last week, I'm going to repeat myself about prayer. Think of it. Think of it in terms of your own life, not somebody else's life, your own life. If professing Christian people really believed that God was going to answer their prayers, healing, uh, God, I need a new job, whatever the need may be, want to see your family members saved, and all of this. If professing Christian people actually really believed that God is answering prayer, the prayer meeting would be the most well-attended meeting of all the church events. So I'm contending, I'm giving an argument that professing Christian people who don't attend prayer meeting, the reason is, the primary reason is, they don't really believe that really anything's going to happen. Charles Finney, who was one of the great leaders of the Second Great Awakening, before he was converted, was invited to a prayer meeting. And because he was a thinker, he was a lawyer, obviously an intelligent man, if you've read about him, he gave the response to the people who invited him to the prayer meeting. He said, why? Why should I come? You never get an answer. They prayed for revival all the time, but they didn't get it. Until Finney came along, and Father Nash and a few others. And they believed that God was going to hear, and just as an aside, Finney believed that you could have revival at any point in time, that it wasn't as sovereign as some say, just a sovereign move of God, just like the weather or the wind. Finney believed, I do as well, that when the principles of Scripture are enacted, obeyed, that God will move. And I think that's what the Scriptures say. He said, I'm not going to come to your prayer meeting. You don't get answers. And, you know, I think that's a pretty prudent way to look at it. But he changed when God, certainly when God touched him, filled him with his spirit, and he obviously understood that God will answer prayer and was the de facto leader of the Second Great Awakening. His name was the most prominent as millions of people came into the kingdom in America at a time when it was low. When you pray, he says, go into the closet. That doesn't have to be literal, but it's to let God know your needs. And here Jesus says, your father who sees and hears in secret is going to reward you openly that people will be able to see the blessings. Now, Jesus, when he was at the tomb of Lazarus, he asked this question of Martha when he said, your brother's going to rise again. He asked this question, and this question I'm asking you, do you believe it? Oh, well, yeah, well, let's see if you believe it. When you go to prayer, watch your own thoughts of what you're thinking. And then listen to your own words and what you're saying. Because by your words, you're justified, and by your words, you're condemned. I mean, I actually, when I pray for people, I actually believe that God's going to touch them. Does it always happen the way I'm praying? Well, of course not. No. But I leave that with God. But I know my part is to be unmovable and not shaken, to just be firm, to believe that God's going to answer prayer. And God does answer prayer. We pray privately. God answers openly. Then in verse 7, he says, when you pray, don't use vain repetitions. Some of us, again, were raised in traditions where we were taught to just pray one thing over and over and over again. 
And Jesus said, don't do that. The heathen, you know, those that don't know God, that's what they do. And they think they're going to be heard because they've prayed for a long time. Let's remember what Charles Spurgeon said. A short prayer will reach the throne if you don't live far away. Again, if you're reading the Bible and you're trying to, well, who are we trying to impress? I don't know that anyone's trying to impress God. I doubt it, but you try to impress people. I've had people try to impress me. And I'm glad that they know so much of the Bible, but I've been in the Bible a long time as well. And what's more impressive is to meet a professing Christian who actually lives it. You know, someone who you just sense, this intuitive sense when you're around them. But let me be honest with you, as has been my habit. Is that the general experience that you have? I mean, when you're around somebody that something special about this person? Because in my view, that's what the anointing actually is. It's not a contrivance. You don't have to be histrionic and dramatic about everything. I'm not saying you can't be emotional or be yourself, but when you have the real deal in anything in life, and you know it, you don't have to talk so much because you know that you have it, and it's there. Well, same with the prayer life. I'm not saying shorten up the time. I know some of you spend hours in prayer. I'm not saying shorten the time up. I'm just saying make sure that it's got a heavy and generous amount of faith put on it because that's what really counts. Lord, save me, Peter said when he was almost ready to drown there. And Jesus just reached down his hand. Lord, three words, Lord, save me. And he did, save him. Don't use vain repetitions saying things over and over again. Verse 8, be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask him. This is a curious verse for me, because I always say to myself, if God knows what I need, why does he tell me to ask him? Never think about that. He already knows what I need, so why should I ask? But I've come up with this belief, and the belief is that it's about relationship. And same with praise, you know, vocalizing praise. And don't be fooled that you think that you have to have musical talent to praise God. You have to be able to really skillfully sing. You don't. You don't. You just praise God. You give God the glory for whatever, for everything, for the day, for everything we see. Here we have Jesus saying that God, the Father, our Father, knows what things we have need of before we ask him. But he still says ask. In James we read, he says, well, you don't have because you don't ask. But if you, know, you want to argue with God, you could say, but you already know what I need. And I want to tell you the truth again about myself. I went through a period like that. I felt no need to pray for certain things because God already knew what I needed. And guess what happened? Nothing. No. <laughs> Nothing. Because in a sense, God is saying, yeah, I know what you need. Now, I want you to ask me. And I believe it has to do with relationships. Same with us praying one for another. I've told you over the years, at times I can discern, at least I think that I can discern who it is that's praying for me. Because my spirit just feels lifted up. And I know it's not myself. I know it's the Holy Spirit. But I know someone at that moment is praying for me. I had a moment like that yesterday. Um, but then again, I also know when prayer is not being lifted up for me because I really kind of feel like I'm on my own. I know I'm not, but again, it's intuitive. So why is this? Why are we taught and told and exhorted to pray for one another? I truly believe it's still about relationship in the body of Christ. I pray routinely for all kinds of people. I have no idea who they are. They solicit me on Facebook, social media. Some email me, text messages all the time. There, honestly, there's some people's names, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And so I do the best I can, and then I'll say to God, well, you know who I'm talking about. Just touch this one, help this one. And again, in my own mind, because of what the scriptures say, though I will never meet this person in all likelihood, wherever they may be, I believe that God is touching them. And sometimes, especially if it's on social media or people contact me personally, it's a great thing to be able to hear somebody say, my daughter, her condition just turned around. She's better, she's getting well. And uh, although I am grateful for medical uh, advancements, technology, I still give the credit to God who gave knowledge to men to be able to do things in medicine that we haven't seen before in times past. Still give the credit to God. And then sometimes you have doctors who say, this is impossible, this case isn't gonna work out, you know, and all that. And then there's God. You make an appeal to God. God save me. God help me. God touch me. God, you know, move on me. Yeah, yeah, let me say this again. And I'm talking to a friend of mine, a young pastor, this past week, just a few days ago. And I'm hearing this in other places too, and I've mentioned it to you. Over the last couple of years, what happened to all the people? 
See, this is not a phenomenon in just one location, one you know, church. It's happening all over the place. And I say this again because it's necessary, I think, in my mind to say it. At a time when people should be drawing as close to God as possible, that is not what we're seeing apparently, apparently. And then you hear what I hear. Well, I love the Lord and I worship at my house. And God never said worship at your house. Not when there's a meeting being called saying, we're going to meet at this building, 46 Market Street, at uh, 10 a.m. on Sunday morning, 9.30 for prayer. And you come. You don't say, well, I worship in my own way. That's exactly what Jesus was saying here. Whoever hears, reads these sayings of mine and does them, that's the man, that's the woman that's going to stand and those that hear them and read them and don't do them. And, we, and listen, and get used to this. God is not going to explain everything to you. If you're inquisitive, like I'm a thinker, I like to, well, how come? How does that work? God has not obligated himself to me to say, every time you read the Bible, I'm going to explain to you exactly how things work biologically, psychologically, spiritually, in physics. He just says, do it. And again, I think it's something to do with relationship. Our prayer one for another is the same thing. It's about relationship. That's what I've come to because God already knows our needs. It's about relationship. I think that caring for a person, the most that you can actually care for a person is when you pray because they may never know. Now, some people, quite a few of you tell me you're always praying for you, and I'm grateful for that. But I may not know when you're praying, and it's not like we have on holidays where we give gifts, which is proper, and it's good and certainly edifying for the person, both giving and person receiving. Prayer is a bit different because, you know, nobody's giving you any reward. Well, other than God, nobody's giving you any rewards. Nobody's recognizing you. And I think something else, too. I think that prayer may be the defining mark of someone who's truly spiritual. And the reason being, again, nobody can give you any credit. In my calling in life as a preacher of all these years now, I get my share of people who say, I just love your preaching. And I'm grateful for that. But you please keep in mind that I get my share of people who, A, have told me they will never listen to me again, whatever. So, you, it's, you know, you have both. In either case, I'm recognized. <laughs> I'm recognized. But I'm not recognized when I pray, because no one knows but God and myself what I'm praying. Now, what I want to get at is this here at verse 9. This is a unique and somewhat universal prayer that you could find in any denomination wherever you go. The one that we know as the Our Father, Lord's Prayer. Unfortunately, it's been turned into a mere, somewhat meaningless repetition. The very thing that Jesus said not to do in the verse just up above it, in verse 7, this unfortunately has been turned into a rote, in some cases, rote, meaningless repetition of the Lord's Prayer. We could actually argue, I could contend to say, well, it's not actually the Lord's Prayer, it's our prayer. Because the disciples said, teach us to pray. And so Jesus, I believe, gives us some insight into, you could look at it as a type of protocol, but I think it's more revelatory than it is, you know, to pray this exact prayer, which is what we do, or we don't do it so much here, but many churches do. They pray, the whole place prays, our Father who art in heaven. You can hear it's a type of a chant. I'm not saying it is chanting, but it can sound like a chant. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's like a chant. But Jesus said, don't do that. This is the paradox that we find sometimes in Christianity the very things that Jesus said don't do, we do, and then we think God's happy with what we did when he said don't do it. Think about that. After this matter, therefore, pray ye. So I'm offering to you my thoughts, which are these. I think that these are revelations of the prayer life. And the first word that we come upon is our. I think, I'd say maybe primarily in the 60s, the 70s, uh, the 20th century, there was a great emphasis on Jesus being your personal savior which I do believe is good because so many of us come out of a corporate setting that we were basically one of a herd not so much recognized and so we were just kind of in the group and then there was an emphasis on Jesus being your personal savior which once again I think was generally good but then as human nature would have it it swung to an extreme and then we had uh, and still have you know all types of people saying don't tell me the Lord spoke to me and told me this and I won't tell you some of the ridiculous things that I've heard over the years. And I'd point out the scripture, but the scripture says just the opposite. Don't tell me. God told me. And he's my savior and all that. So we need balance in this. 
But we need to also remember now that we've kind of overemphasized the personal aspect of Jesus being just your Savior, not just your Savior, but your Savior, which you need that. Now we have to remember the rest, that he's our Father. It's a necessity, I think, in this moment of history that we recognize that we're in this together. If you came from a big family or if you have a big family, you already know family does not always get along. If you came from a family that always got along, you were probably a 60s TV show. Most families have their moments. Some families don't get along well. But, you know, another thing that's unique about family is that when the push comes to a shove and one of the family members are in trouble or whatever, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, the family comes together. You know? I told you I had a younger brother. Oh, I still have a younger brother. And he's still younger. It's just that he's not young. And nobody bothered him in the neighborhood because they'd always say, you know who his older brother is? And if I needed to, on occasion I did, I would go find somebody that was bothering my brother and tell them why they shouldn't. <laughs> and they didn't. The word to those wise people were just, don't touch my brother. And then, you know, you, you give a prophecy. And so family comes together. You know, even families that are not getting along. I think that's an apt point for Christians, professing Christians. We don't always get along in the local church, in the universal church. We don't always see eye to eye on things. We must see eye to eye on the essentials. However, I believe if I was to turn from the Lord and become really anti-Christ, anti-Christian, I mean, I believe I can make a really good case against Christianity. That's what happened to a Christian for so long. What saves me all the time is one thing, Christ Amen. and the Bible. And I'm grateful for that. Because I can't understand, and I've said this to you recently as well, I can't understand how everybody's got the Spirit and nobody talks to each other. How everybody's got the same Spirit, same baptism, same Lord, and don't want to bother with each other, don't get along with each other. Tell me how that works. I don't understand how it works. Well, the truth of it is it doesn't work. Our Father. Not just my Father. And He's not just your Father. And it's not all about you. It's about us. We I love that word, we. It's always uh, showing that there's ownership wherever you go. What are we going to do? Or where do we keep the whatever? So it's about us. It's about we. It's not simply about me. And then, of course, he's our father. Our father. This is one of the unique things about Jesus that began to get not only the attention, but the ire of the Jewish authorities that he was relating to God as his father. Now, we know that Jesus is uniquely the only begotten son of the father. He's God come in the flesh. But now he's saying to all of us, as we come down through the centuries, he's saying to all of us, call him Father. Abba, the Hebrew word for Father. Father. And if, again, for those of us who heard this a lot growing up and it became a rope prayer, our Father was in heaven, and you can pray as fast as you want so you just can go and get out of there, it loses the impact of talking to God, who many people say is impersonal, Deists, those, you know, they say, well, God, yeah, of course he created the universe and he walked away from it. He doesn't even know what's going on. That's not what Jesus said. He said, talk to God and recognize this is being born again, right? You understand that. We have the same spirit in Romans 8, the same spirit of Christ. It's not a duplicate. It's the same spirit, the same Holy Spirit. Now we go to God the way Jesus went to God and say, Father. My dad was not a perfect man. I assume that yours was not either, if you knew your father. But I never had a doubt, not once, not ever, that my father would not supply for me. Now, some of you come from different backgrounds, you know, alcoholism, drug addiction, whatever, abandonment, where you did have doubts, and rightfully so. But in my case, I just never had a doubt that my father would always <laughs> supply for me. I'm laughing because uh, during the early 70s, uh, for those of you who lived through it, we had a recession, and there was not many jobs. And I wanted to get a job, and I wanted to go to work. And my father worked down in Water Street, which is right near Wall Street. He was an insurance broker for the largest insurance brokerage company in the world. And he was an executive with them. And I said, Dad, you know, don't you have some contacts, you know? So he set me up with a few interviews. My resume basically was blank. How much education do you have? You know, uh, Yonkers High School. I got out of high school. And there was nothing there. And, you know, again, even as a kid, what was I, 18, 19 at the time, it was just an intuitive sense that they're just being polite because they knew my dad. It's like, hmm, okay, well, thanks for stopping by. You know, I went all these places. I had a suit on. If you've ever seen a picture of it on Facebook, it looks a lot like a chessboard. 
was a 70s type of thing. I mean, I had my shirt and my tie, and my hair wasn't long anymore. It was cut. It was kempt, but, you know, it was just, just a, <laughs> a polite thing. I thought I was connected because my dad was sending me to people, but evidently not. I remember coming home from that day down in Manhattan, going to all these places and not feeling very good about these interviews. You remember the Nestle plunge? I remember just falling on my bed and just hugging it. Twin bed. Just so glad that I had it. So my, my dad called up later that afternoon and asked how I made out. And I said, Dad, I want to let you know. I fell on my bed and I hugged it. I have never been so grateful for that bed in my whole life. And he just started to laugh. He remembered that for many, many years. He could not forget that experience. And maybe because my dad was one of eight boys that had no father. My grandfather died at 38, a massive heart attack, and all eight of them grew up during the Great Depression. And I think that was kind of a little bit before people were whining about all that they don't have. My father didn't have a lot, his seven brothers didn't have a lot, but they all served in World War II. They were all veterans. My uncle Rollo was in Pearl Harbor when it was attacked. My dad was in every theater of battle on the seas as a merchant marine, and on and on. And they all made out well. <clears throat> anyway, I think he got a kick out of that fact. That I became very appreciative. You never know what you're missing until it's gone or it's not there. Like the old uh, proverb, really, waste not, want not is a maxim I would teach. Let our watchword be dispatch and practice what you preach. Let us not let our chances like moonbeams pass you by, for you'll never miss the water till the well runs dry. And we talked about that drought in America now. And we look back, even when some of us were young and missed those days. When there was an opening prayer in school, and we asked for God's, and you know, God was, and we were allowed to read a Bible, and look at the mess we got in our hands now. Once we gave God his quietus and said, get out, we can get along without you. Now we don't even know if we're male or female. We don't know what's going on. All because of what Jesus said. Oh, we read the Bible. Reading it won't help you if you don't practice it. If you don't do what it says. If you violate God, it's not going to be good. Our Father, He's our Father. We can go before Him. He's going to supply all of our needs according to His riches and glory. And then look at His location. Our Father is in heaven. We could say, just as a matter of illustration, that's His home. And we are headed home. We're headed home. So as bad as things are right now, and I always want you to know that I'm never suggesting passivity, we don't do anything. I just think that there's a lot of people that are trying too hard to work against the plan God has already announced that this is how it's going to go. I'm somewhere in the middle. Let's, we should be doing what we can to reach people, especially children, and to be reaching others and helping others and all of this. We have to occupy till he comes. On the other hand, we're somewhat limited. Our sovereignty is limited. And God, our Father, has set his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all, and that's where we're headed. If, as I told you a week or so back from this pulpit, if you would look at that more, you'd be a little bit, maybe not even a lot, a little bit more cheerful than you've been lately. You don't like your boss? He's not going to last forever. You will, because you've been born again into the kingdom of God. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. Marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. I got to say this to you. Again, I see these things, and I say to myself, I don't know, who comes up with this? Um, enjoy the journey. It's not about the goal, or it's not about the end. It's about the journey. And I said to myself, what? Not the journey? My experience in the journeys, that hasn't been all that pleasant. I haven't been always enjoying the journey. You're happy every day of your life? No difficulties? No stressors? You're crazy. You know, no, I don't think it's about the journey. I think it's about reaching the destination. Yes. Seeing God face to face. Yes. Our Father which art in heaven. Look up a little higher today and see. This isn't going to last. One of the, uh, um, it's a sad thing for me as I've been on a little odyssey of my own these last few years, three, four to look up people I lost touch with, people I was good friends with growing up with. And I caught up with quite a few, and I'm in touch with people I never would have been in touch with. And I just enjoy talking to my friends, even if it's just a little comment on Facebook or something, social media. But then it's sad for me when I discovered this one's dead, that one's gone, and some of them died years ago, 20, 30 years ago. I just find that a bit sad. But then I remind myself, you're not gonna last either. You're going to die one day. 
And on my show, if you watch it, The Oasis, I proposed that as a way to overcome anxiety. One of my friends who's a professional musician, he wrote in two words, that's heavy. Because I said, if you understand you're going to die, if Jesus doesn't come back first, you are going to die. And you always keep that in mind. As in the first place, you work your way backward. Then you prioritize everything. Then things that ordinarily bother you, and I'm frustrated every day with things, then I say, you know, what does this matter? I do try, especially as I got older, to live in the moment, because you don't get these moments back. I go to watch one of my granddaughters graduating from kindergarten going to first grade and watch about 100 kids singing. It was great. I videotaped the whole thing. But you know, listen to me, there's some wisdom here. We all have this tendency, so you're there and you're looking at your granddaughter, your grandson, or it could be anything, and then your mind all of a sudden is going to, well, an hour from here I got to do this and I got to do that. There's a lot of you like that, because I know when we talk, I pick up on it. Remind yourself, don't do that. That hour will come soon enough when you got to do whatever you got to do. But once that moment's gone, watching those little kids sing, it doesn't come back. It's gone forever. How many of you look at your own children or maybe your grandchildren or your own life and you can't believe how fast the time has gone? And most of us were always looking this way. But I'm saying that we weren't looking far enough. Don't look this way. Look up. Because over here, he's going to teach us to pray, thy kingdom come. So he's in heaven and that's where we're going. And notice this here, hallowed be thy name. It means your name is holy. It's not the only attribute of God. We know that. But it's one of his main attributes. And Jesus says to keep this in mind when you're praying. With vain repetitions, we can go to Ecclesiastes where Solomon says, when you go to God, let your words be few. Don't try to talk God. Well, you can't talk him to death, right? He's God. But don't try to impress him with hours of praying long. Most of that, and I've told you this in times past, most of that is just sublimating anxiety. Well, if it works for you, then okay. But just realize that God's not hearing you because you're praying long. He's hearing the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick and, you know, move mountains, all these things Jesus taught about. It's not so much being, you know, your mouth just filled with words all the time. It's understanding and understanding this. The reason Solomon wrote, let your words be few, not even so much about the vain repetition being heard, but because of the holiness of God. We've all done it. You know, you go before God at a moment of exuberance and you promise God the sun, the moon, and the stars. I'm going to do everything for you, God. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then God says, okay, fine, let's get started. And you're not even two feet into the adventure. You're already distracted and your mind is someplace else. Or you're getting discouraged and you want to quit. Holy is your name. Father, our Father, chart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. What do you think? God is a Republican? A Democrat? He said, no. He's a Libertarian. Yeah, he's God. He doesn't belong to a political party. A lot of political parties want to own him. A lot of churches want to own him. But God says, not so. I will not share my glory with another. You've all seen the picture outside the churches in Washington. Every president does it. I mean, they bashed Trump when he did it, but every president, they, they hold up the Bible in front of the president's church, Presbyterian church down there. Okay, fine, that's great. Makes me feel good. But I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Can't impress God. He's God. And he tells us here that his kingdom is coming. I happen to believe it. And in all this distress, and lately my mind is a lot thinking about these little kids, for all the reasons that you already know, how to reach them and how to influence their life, I still have to remind myself God's kingdom is on its way. It's coming. And the signs that Jesus told us to look for, the apostles, prophets, they're right in front of us right now. They're happening right now. And that means the kingdom is coming. We see a storm, but, you know, without the rain, nothing grows. So we know behind the rain there's going to be sunshine and there's going to be growth and things are going to be greener. Somebody actually said that to me the other day. It's starting to rain. The grass is going to grow again. Yeah, right. That's how it works. But the rain comes first, then the grass grows and the sun hits it. No matter how dark it is at the moment in the times in which we live, the sun's going to shine again. But this time it won't be the S-U-N, it'll be the S-O-N. When he comes on clouds, behold, I come on the clouds. Keep that in mind. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. I think this is more, I believe this would be more on a personal level because God's will is being done, of course, in heaven. And it's being done in the earth in many, many ways, but the one exception would be in the hearts of men. 
Is it thy will be done or my will be done? And I tell you that there are times when I meditate on this and I have to ask myself, do I really want to say to God, God, have your will in my life? Now, I've said it, and of course, I'm still sincere about that. But as you get older, you get wiser, hopefully, and you realize that God may introduce some things into your life that are not to your liking. And this bypasses all this popular teaching that we have today. Because it's implied, it's not stated, it's implied that if you just come to God, He's going to give you everything that you want. I'm not going to mention this evangelist's name. She's internationally known. Now she's in some kind of scuffle over some weight loss thing. I don't want to be known. Well, I know that I won't be known as a weight loss guy. (laughs) So that's good. That's one less thing that I have to worry about. But I don't want to be known because I do a commercial for some sleep aid. You can't sleep me either until I tried, you know, Dr. Harvey's... I want to be remembered as a preacher. I mean, primarily a father and husband and other things, a friend. Look, I'm going to help you. Now, don't look at me as an example because I have my own goals and don't judge me. If you want to lose weight, stop eating. (laughs) And there you go. You can save yourself money. You can save yourself time. You don't have to wait for I won't even name these people because some of them have good reputations when they're in the field of medicine. Now they're quacks. And they're always selling you something, an introductory offer, $99.99. It's never $100. It's always $99.99. So, wow, it's a bargain. I saved a penny. And then you get on the monthly program. They always pick skinny people. They used to be fat. Now they're skinny. And it was their product. And then everything, you know, there's carnivores and there's vegans and there's all these people. And they were saying, their diet is the best. It all works. And I know the answer. You want to lose weight? Stop eating and take a walk. So I won't be known as the weight loss king. But the emphasis certainly is not on that. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. God, let your will be done. When Jesus is going to the cross, he states, If it be possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine. He wasn't talking about going to the cross, by the way. He was talking about the agony he was going through. If it be possible, Father, let this cup pass. I don't want to drink from this anymore. The capillaries underneath his skin are breaking and they're coming through the pores as blood. And this is a phenomenon you can read about in medical textbooks. And he's bleeding. You're talking about you're stressed. We're all stressed. And none of us have been stressed to the point that the capillaries underneath the skin are breaking and coming through the pores as blood. Yet it happened in Jesus' case. That's what he was praying for. He said, but nevertheless, Father, not my will, but thine be done. And he became the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So we pray, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now look at this, verse 11. Give us this day daily bread. I've said this to you before. I'm saying it again. I'm very blessed in this country, myself. Refrigerated today is full. Often have to move things around to find things. I learned a long time ago not to complain about that. You know, you get frustrated. We get frustrated over stupid things, myself included. And you realize your refrigerator is full. It's full of things. It's full of food. I'm grateful. I'm grateful. But it's this here, daily bread. Now, in all these conversations that you're in and you're hearing people talk about there's going to be food shortages, first of all, I dismiss most fear-mongering, not only conversations, but fear-mongering statements. I don't care who says it. I really don't. And you know why? Because God's my Father. And my God is going to supply. If I have to go down to the Mohawk River that is now dried up, he's going to send these crows with me. That's what he did for Elijah. I don't know how God's going to supply. I just know that he is. He supply for his own. So I'm not going to have somebody who's filled with fear fill me with fear. You keep that for yourself. I'd rather be filled with faith and believe God. Like what God has said. But the word daily has got something for us here as Americans in particular. Give us this day our daily bread. Give me today what I need for today. And then we have a further teaching of Jesus where he says one day at a time. If you'll take note of your own thoughts, you'll find out a lot of your anxiety is coming from looking too far ahead. That's how I used to feel when I went to the dentist. I mean, I was having panic attacks a month in advance until I learned that I don't have to have a panic attack until he's actually drilling my teeth or pulling them. (laughs) 
<laughs> Why put myself through needless pain for 29 days when it's only going to last 15 minutes? And so I've disciplined my mind in many ways just to dismiss thoughts. I say to myself, I don't think about that. I don't think about that either. You look too far ahead, you're going to be anxious. If you're prone to anxiety, if you're prone to worry, you're going to start worrying. If you're prone to think about God, just keep in mind that God always has everything under control. And if you don't believe that, then you're going to be anxious. But if you actually really, really do believe that, it will not eliminate your anxiety altogether, but it will greatly diminish it. Because God will never share his glory with another. And God is, always was, and always will be in control. Thy kingdom come. That's what we're looking for as Christians. And thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That's got to become your prayer. And here's the beauty of it, by the way. And even when you're reading these biographies of great Christians, I often find things I disagree with. Greatest of Christians. For instance, somebody gets sick. And they say, well, you know, this sickness here, you know, it's been glorifying God. And maybe through that sickness it is. I can't say on an individual basis. But one thing I do know about Christ, he was a healer. Christ healed the sick. All that came to him that was sick, he healed them. Don't alter and amend the text. What I'm saying is that the normal state for us is to be healthy and to be, well, happy. If you don't believe that, read Job chapter 5. Behold, happy is the man whom the Lord chasteneth and all the promises that go with it. And not superficially happy. Guy tells me one day, I say, hey, how's it going? Oh, if there's any better, it have to be twins. I say, okay, great, you know, one of you is enough. They make it kind of like superficial. Another guy, uh, I don't know if he's serious or not, but he's a good guy. He's a real good guy. And every time I say, hey, good morning, how's it going? Great. Never had a bad day in my life. I say, wow, that's a compelling study in abnormal psychology because I've never met an individual that's never had a bad day. Are you going to tell me you've never had a bad day? I have. I've had plenty of them. But still, there's a stability that comes from knowing God, not just knowing what the Bible says, but actually acting on it, a stability that keeps you balanced. And you get pushed and shoved and hit, but you're still balanced. And that's very important. Give us this day our daily bread. And you can count on that God did it with Israel with manna one day at a time, twice on Friday, because they weren't to work on the Sabbath. And God supplied for 40 years that way, one day at a time. Try to make as your motto, Lord, just one day at a time. Don't think too far ahead. The evil that's to come will be there soon enough. And oddly enough, let me tell you something. People actually do better in emergencies than they do in thinking about emergencies. And forgive us our debts. I'm there for that one. As we forgive our debtors. Well, not so much on that one. I want God to forgive me. But I'm reluctant to forgive other people who have damaged me. You say, boy, you're a terrible pastor. Yeah, maybe a lot of you are terrible Christians because you know what I'm talking about. You want God to accept you into heaven. You want God to be good to you. You want God this, you want God that, but you don't want to do it to other people. Hmm? You're going to deny it. You're going to sit there in silence and say, not me. I forgive everybody. Well, then there's something wrong with your brain. Because I'm telling you something, I got into a little discussion with, you know, when I preach, there's always experts sitting in the congregation who know more than I do. And I remember once teaching on to forgive is actually a good thing because you're putting it in God's hands and saying, you know, God, you take care of this, but you don't have to forget. I got challenged on that by a woman, a young woman at the time, and she's older now, but a young woman at the time, she said, I don't agree with that. Uh, so why? Well, the idea is this. If somebody came and just maliciously stabbed me in the chest, and then I learned that there's a habit of it, there's a kind of a pattern that this person does. And now I'm in the hospital, and it's a touch-and-go situation and all this, and they pull the knife out, and they sew me up, and thank God I pulled through. And now some superficial individual is saying, no, you have to forgive that guy. Okay, the sick, evil mind, but I'm not going to forget. When I see him playing with his knife, I'm not going to say, oh, hey, everything's cool. When this guy has a knife in his hand, I'm backing away. I just happened to providentially read a verse today when I was turning to this passage, when the Apostle Paul said, Mark them that cause divisions among you and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned. Mark them. Doesn't mean I don't like them. Doesn't mean I have to hate them. But it means to stay away from that. 
That's why forgiveness is actually easy because you put it in God's hands and you don't have to be in a position where you think about this all the time. Every time you see this person coming to you or coming near you or coming at you, you forgive them, yes. Because that's what Jesus said, that when we pray, we need to forgive others in order for us to be forgiven. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let's jump down to verse 14. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. This is sowing and reaping. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If that doesn't motivate you, what will? Now let's look at verse 13 as we finish. And lead us not into temptation. What this is saying in prayer, and this is supposed to be part of our daily prayers, God, lead me away from that thing I would have fell into. Lead my path in a way to avoid the temptation. So I don't even see it. You're alcoholic, you don't walk past the liquor store. You walk around it. You don't go past the bars. You find some route where you don't even have to see it. Same with anything else that you're likely to fall into as much as it could be a box of chocolates. You don't buy it. You don't have it in the house. It's not there. There are many, many things that we will fall into if we just walk smack into it. Jesus said when we're praying, among all the things that we've read, he says, Father, lead me in the path away from the temptations I would have fell into or I'd be faced with. And God, as we acknowledge him, he will direct our paths. And look at this here. I gave this to you again a week or so back. None dare call it evil, but deliver us from evil. And just quickly, we must acknowledge that some things in life don't have any rational explanation. That's what people do all the time. They're always trying to say, well, you know, the, the guy had this and that, and we did an MRI of his brain. There's something in the world called evil for which there is no other explanation except satanic powers and spirits. It's just evil. And we're living in an evil age. Deliver us from evil. Lead us away from the temptations we would have faced and perhaps fell into and sinned against you. And deliver us from evil. And then lastly, he says, for thine is the kingdom. It doesn't belong to Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and, thankfully, Communists and Socialists and all these other ists. The kingdom is God's. His is the power. His will be the glory. And it will last forever. What does amen mean? So be it. Or let it be. This is how we are taught to pray. And he is our father. When we, 1 John chapter 1, when we read, if we, we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another. Then he's not only my God, and he's your God, he's our father. Or my father, your father, he's our father. And then we begin to act like it. Peace in the family. This is what God wants. You as a parent who've had children who don't get along, you desperately wanted them to get along. You wanted peace. Now, it don't always work out that way. But that's what you wanted. You wanted peace, but it doesn't always work out that way with human beings. But with people who profess to be Christian and have the Spirit of God and filled with the Spirit of God and have the Word of God and the prayer life and all that, then the object is for us to be at peace one with another. That's the Word of God. Then he's our father. I am under a very sincere conviction that in the days to come, we are going to need each other. Even if it's just as simple yet profound as praying for each other. I don't know precisely what the days ahead hold. I just have this conviction. We are going to need each other. And it can come in many, many forms. So what we need to do is we need to practice now the hour not just the whole prayer, but the hour aspect. In other words, you're dealing with other Christians. You have to keep in mind that he's his or her father, too. The, the new baby Christian, right? I mean, they come in, they're a month, six months, born again. But they already may be 60 years old. And if you're not clued in, you think, you're, why aren't you acting like a Christian? Why? Well, the question is, why aren't you acting like a Christian? Take care of yourself. This person over here has only been with the Lord for a couple of few weeks, a couple of few months. How can they possibly be mature in the Lord when they haven't known the Lord that long? But those of you and those of us that have been around a long time, much more is expected of us. And I'm ending on this peace in the family. Get along. Forgive each other. I'm telling you now that most things that you, you or I, myself too, consider to be monumental things were actually in reality trivialities. Happens to everybody. 
We made it into mountains and our little molehills. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And it's like the anointing, the oil that ran down off Aaron's beard. The anointing is present with the family of God, people of God, calling him our father. And we're headed towards the kingdom. Boy, what a day that's going to be. When it's really, really over. I mean, like really over. I mean, not just over like for one or two or three. I mean, it's over for everybody. What a day that's going to be. When we are there together, what's the first thing we're going to do? I don't know. I'm going to go away for a couple million years to be alone. <laughs> then I'll be back. After that, I don't know. It's beyond my imagination what it's going to be like. The first day, I mean, when the whole program's over, everything's over. Antichrist is gone, the devil's in the lake of fire and the false prophet, and the kingdom is restored. I mean, what's it going to be like? Well, I think that that's something to think about. I think that's something to think about for today. You want to beat depression? Think on that. Want to beat anxiety? Think on that. Father, we bless you this morning and we thank you. There's a lot to be worried about, a lot to be depressed about, a lot to be anxious about, but it all depends on what things we put into our minds. I thank you and I bless you today, Father, that you are not just my father or somebody else, but you're our father. You taught us to pray. You gave us the protocol. Now, God, help us to act, as we read at the beginning here, so many things that are said to us. If they're not acted upon, we're building a structure, our lives, on sand, and it's going to topple, it's going to fall down. However, if we look at the book and we read it, and we do what it says, and we're obedient, we're building our lives on rock. And when the storms come, and they will, they will not be able to destroy what we have built in you. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you, Father God. The time is short. Our life here is short, and soon and very soon we're going to see the king. We give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. And we call you our Father. Pour out your spirit today. It's a beautiful day outside. Let it be a beautiful day inside. And remind us all week long to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, all of the strength. And remind us again, Father, to love one another. We pray all these things today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.